So we're going to go to the next step here now, and we're going to look at the word for a little bit here. Book of Hebrews, you can turn to chapter 9, and it, this really is a, a remarkable dovetail with the prophetic words that came forth this morning. Um, title is Solving Sin. How does trouble start? Personally, or even in our society, socially, why do we struggle? I want you to think about this. Is the issue class difference? Racial difference? Educational difference? Economic disparity? Is that the fundamental problem? Your answer to the question of why we struggle impacts how you see solutions. And so all of the above are certainly factors. But the biggest issue that the Bible sees is solving the sin in each of those areas. So how do we solve sin? So, so far what we've seen in Hebrews really summarizing fast is the first like seven chapters, Jesus is the greatest leader, better than all the Old Testament leaders, and he's the greatest priest, right? And the reason for that, we learned in chapter 813, is because the old covenant was intended to be fulfilled. It pointed all along to the new covenant, and Jesus is the superior sacrifice so this morning, we're going to look at how Jesus is the solution to sin. How does he solve sin? Several ways Jesus solves sin. The first way he solves sin is by atonement. So read with me Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15 to 22. It says, on account of all this, he's a mediator of a new covenant after he died for the redemption of those who sinned, uh, transgressed the first covenant in order that those who are called might receive an eternal inheritance. Going to set us up for an eternal inheritance. Verse 16. Because wherever there's a covenant, it's necessary to establish the death of the one who made the... I'm going to translate this, and I'll make it, explain it in a moment. It's necessary to establish the death of the one who made the covenant settlement. Because a covenant settlement is operative upon death, it's not enforced at any time while the one who made the will or the covenant settlement lives. I'll explain that in a moment, but just read a few more verses. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For after all the commands according to the law of Moses were spoken to all the people, and after taking the blood of calves and goats with water and crimson wool and hyssop, he sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. And both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry he likewise sprinkled with blood, and according to the law, he cleansed almost everything by blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Whew. Let's pray. So, Lord, in Jesus' name, as we look at your word, we pray three things. That understanding, solid intellectual grasp would occur. You'd help us to understand your word. What, what in the world's going on here? Secondly, we pray that you'd help us to care, that you would touch our hearts, and thirdly, that by your spirit, you'd motivate our will to act on what we hear this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So back to verse 15. It is an eternal inheritance. So what he is alluding to here is that that first covenant, although inaugurated by God and very important, it did provide a measure of atonement, but they kept coming back every year, so it was incapable of an eternal redemption, is what he's saying, an eternal redemption. And he repeats that point in Hebrews chapter 10, 1 to 10, which we're not going to read this morning because it's basically a restatement of that, all right? But we'll jump to the last part of chapter 10 later. So notice the verse that we read for communion this morning. This is the blood, uh, where is it? 
This is the, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, right? Jesus is self-consciously linking to this Old Testament concept, but saying it's my blood of the covenant, which is shed out for many. So as I said, verses 16 and 17 make more sense. The word there in Greek is diatheke, covenant, right? Covenant or will. But, but the point he's making in those verses is it's like a will. It's a covenant settlement, right? And so because of this, uh, on the analogy of a will, the death of the willmaker activates the inheritance, right? You don't get an inheritance till the person who made the will dies. So he's saying Jesus died initiating this inheritance of forgiveness in Christ. Then he goes into some details that probably are more detailed than we want, but 18 to 21, how the first covenant used death of animals. And then in verse 22, again, because without the shedding of blood... There is no forgiveness. Who? No. Whoa, what's going on here, right? The author of Hebrews is alluding to Leviticus 17.11, where it says, it is the blood that makes atonement by reason of the life. It is the blood that makes atonement by reason of the life. In other words, covenant teaching, old covenant teaching as well as new, it teaches that sin inevitably, by its nature, brings death. And so in the Old Covenant, they're introducing this concept that, you know, sin is deadly. It kills you spiritually. It brings death. But we can, God will let you substitute an animal for your own death because he loves us. But he's still showing us that death is uh, the result of sin. So forgiveness required an animal substitute and a little bit of what I think is going on there, this is, I won't say this is exegesis, but as I read Old Testament and the culture of the time, I think what's going on is they all sacrificed animals. You read stuff, and even the non-Israelites, right? So probably what's going on is he's taking the worship practices of the time and giving them theological content. Say, okay, you sacrifice animals, here's why, right? The life is in the blood. This, this life is in substitution for your life, Right? And so, again, the point is that sin by nature brings death, but there can be a substitute death in your place. The most famous passage for that in the Old Covenant, of course, is Isaiah 53, right, where the suffering servant actually says he will make atonement by the death of a human life in our place. Verse 15, back to that one, the perfect son dies for our eternal inheritance. Why is this important? Two things. Although it's very sobering and some people are you know, bothered by the bloody nature of some of the stuff in the Old and New Covenant, it reminds us sin is deadly. Sin is not arbitrary. God didn't say, well, let's make these things right and these things wrong. No. The things that are wrong are, are deadly to our human nature. Have you ever felt that? I have. It's like you're, you're fighting with a sin, and you realize, I don't even want this. This, is, this would be bad, right? This is not good, right? I got to get out of this habit, whatever it is, because this is not good. It not, does not produce what I want. It's deadly to the human spirit. Pride, lust, greed, you name it, right? And so it's a good reminder. But secondly, hallelujah, Jesus' death paid for you. You know, some of these prophecies earlier, God's going to go, you know, exposing the things of your heart. Some of us would be like, ah! <laughs> you know? uh, 
I'm going to go hide in a hole, go play a video game, forget that prophecy right now. No. <laughs> it's mercy. It's good. It's for good. And you know what? As you expose your heart, he says, you're forgiven. Confess your sins, you're forgiven. That's how God is. Because the first way Jesus solves sin is by atonement. The second way he solves sin is closely related, by annulment. Now, this is a really, really interesting to me and almost hard to understand. Verse 23 says, Therefore, on the one hand, it's necessary that the symbols of those heavenly things be cleansed. In other words, the earthly tabernacle, uh, the Jewish tabernacle. But the heavenly things with greater sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, an image of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear before the face of God on behalf of us. And not in order that he might offer himself many times as the high priest entered the holiest annually by the blood of another, then it would have been necessary for him to suffer many times from the foundation of the world. No, here we go. But now he appeared once at the consummation of the ages for the annulment of sin through the sacrifice of himself as it's destined to man to die once, and after this judgment, thus also Christ, offering himself once to bear the sin of many, will appear a second time for the salvation of those who eagerly await him. Verse 26 is, it just captured me. Christ annulled sin. So the analogy, of course, is to marriage, right? It's the other place we use the word annulment. So if you are divorced, it's a tragedy for many reasons, right? But you were married before. But if your marriage is annulled for some legal reason, then you have never been married. Okay, so maybe you found out that, you know, this guy had another wife in Utah, you know. And okay, so then they annul that marriage because it was an illegal marriage. You were never married, right? Well, that's the most common cause for annulment. Anyway, so, uh, so you know, th there's something illegal about that first marriage. You were never married. So you're not divorced. You were never married, okay? Jesus annulled sin in your life. I mean, how much you want, right? You know what I mean? Like, he has annulled it. It is like it never was. Do I have to do it? Woo! Right? <laughs> I mean, this, what? Is this in the Bible? Yeah. What? He annulled sin by the sacrifice of himself. Like it never existed in the first place. Utterly removed. And he says in 27, 28, as each one dies once and then judgment, Christ died once and will come again. That's an important aside, but it is an aside. The main point is he died once for sin. 27 is important theology. People die once. There's no reincarnation. And then they face judgment. Revelation 20, 10, a lake of fire forever and ever. Verse 28, but he brings salvation to those who are waiting. Alleluia. You want to wait for Jesus? Do you see how that connects actually to the things I was saying about divisions earlier? What is the focus of the believer? Thank you, Jesus, I'm forgiving, and I'm looking for you. I'm waiting for you. And so my whole life, I can be an engineer, I can be a chemist, I can be a garbage collector, but my whole life is focused on he's coming again. He's coming again. And it shapes how we live. It, 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 in a sense, it relativizes everything else, right? It focuses us. 
So how does this help us? Well, put your faith in him. And when you do that, your sin isn't just forgiven. It is annulled, right? So the second way Jesus solves sin is by annulment. There's one other way that Jesus solves sin. And uh, he repeats himself in Hebrews 10, 1 to 10. So I'm not going to read that. I'm going to go to Hebrews 10, 11 to 18. The third way Jesus solves sin is by making us holy. And at full disclosure, we are about to read one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. All right? So, okay. Start with verse 11. It's a bit, but we'll be okay. 11 through 18. And on the one hand, every priest stands daily serving and offering the same sacrifice many times, which are never able to take away sins. But on the other hand, after offering a sacrifice for sins forever, this one sat at the right hand of God, henceforth waiting until his enemies are placed under his feet. And here it is. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being made holy. And the Holy Spirit testifies also to us, because after what he says, and this will be familiar, this is the covenant which I will covenant with them after those days, says the Lord. I'll give my laws into their hearts and write them upon their minds, and their sins and their lawlessness I will never Remember again, where there is forgiveness of sins, there's no longer any offering or sacrifice for sins. Wow. So if you were to read all of chapter 10, verses 1 to 4 repeat the previous point that the law can't perfect us, right? And verses 5 to 8 explain that God doesn't really want offerings. He wants obedience, doing his will. And then Jesus jumps in and does God's will, verses 9 and 10, which sanctifies us. And then verse 14 He's perfected forever those who are being made holy. Now, in 15 to 17, what is he doing? He's repeating Jeremiah 31 again, that God's, what's God's goal? To write his truth on our hearts. You see this? You're not just, a, actually, I've seen Francisco. Francisco's doing a senior project, and God wants to, he doesn't just forgive us, he changes us, right? It's a change of nature. He writes his truth on our hearts and then on our minds. Internal obedience and no more offerings needed. But look at verse 14. I call this spirituality for real people. For by the one offering, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Those who are being made holy is one word, it's Greek participle for those that know Greek, and it's in the present tense, meaning it's ongoing action. He's already made you perfect forever, even as you are being made holy. This is spirituality for real people, right? You know, you t- it's, it's different but similar to the Pauline psychology where he says, this is who you are in Christ, now live it, right? This is who you are, now live it. So he's saying, I have perfected you, Christ has perfected you forever, even as you are learning to walk it out, as you are being, and you know what? It's not even you. Notice this is very interesting. It's in the passive voice. In other words, the grace is so strong here. He says he's made you perfect forever. Even as God is working, you are being made holy. He is operating on the human spirit. He's writing his law in your mind. He's putting it on your heart, and you are beginning to do something that you never would have been able to do otherwise. Amazing. This is the perfect environment. You're perfect already while being made holy. This is the perfect environment to grow in holiness. Why? The little guy is gone right now. 
He's my sermon illustration. We'll just remember him, okay? God is like the father of a toddler. The baby's becoming a toddler. And what happens with a toddler? Every step is celebrated, and when the kid falls, there is maximum comfort. Oh, buddy, it's okay. You're going to do it again. You stand up again, right? Nobody's like, oh, dumb kid can't walk. No. It's like, hey, yeah, wow. Great job, you know. I remember Eric, you know, come on, Eric. Oh, Eric, slow down. Oh, Eric, doing a flip. You know, oh, my gosh, you know, amazing, but don't break your neck, right? So, you know, my kids were like a little precocious that way. Anyway, you get the idea that you're celebrating every move. Hallelujah, right? That's how God is with his people. Total comfort for every failure. Why? This is the environment. God's a psychologist, right? (laughs) The best psychologist. The, the, The environment that produces the greatest change is high challenge with no risk to the relationship. Right? You try anything. You love me? Okay, Lord, I'll try to walk on water. Oops, that's okay, son. You know, right? High security, high challenge is how we grow. Yeah, he agrees. Yeah. yeah. Amen. Yeah. You're experiencing it right now. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, same way. What's the greatest formula for intimacy? High security with someone who's really pursuing to know you, right? Where you trust, but it's not a passive thing. Yeah. So analogy to marriage as well as to parenting. That's Jesus. Is this your picture of sanctification? Is God the loving father or the judge in your mind? It's really important that Christians get a Christian worldview. It's really important that believers have an understanding of how God actually changes you. And so when you are in a high security but high challenge environment, God can change you. Right? Passive fathers just let you go. Active fathers are working with their kids. That's our Father in heaven. Right? Brutal fathers lose their temper and yell when the kid fails. Good fathers say, that wasn't good. It's okay, son. Let's try it again. Oh, you lost your temper. Okay. You can have a do-over. Let's do it again. Right? Let's try that again. And, and you're learning to walk. Right? You're learning. Oh, man. And the Holy Spirit is inside you, helping you. Powerful. It's a Trinitarian experience, actually. Jesus died for you. The Spirit's in you. The Father's encouraging you. Sanctification is learning to walk toward goodness. It's not walking away from good stuff to hard stuff, although sometimes it's hard for a while. There's a glorious vision here. You have been declared perfect. Trinitarian, follow this. You've been declared perfect in Christ. Now the Father is before you, and the Holy Spirit is within you, enabling you to walk. And you're experiencing the best possible parental relationship you can imagine, walking with you by the power of the Spirit. Hallelujah. Oh, man, I'm telling you, taste and see the Lord is good. Taste and see the Lord is good. If you stumble, your sin is atoned. It's been annulled. You're perfected forever. So the third way Jesus solves sin is by making us holy. 
This is good news. I feel this several regularly as we're walking through the book of Hebrews. I feel like I'm just preaching the gospel over and over. But you know what? When we get it, we'll share it. When we get it, we'll share it. This is spirituality for real people who aren't perfect yet, but are longing. I know, your worst days, you're not longing. Okay. You can, you can pray right now about that. Lord, forgive me. Help me to long, right? Jesus solves sins by atonement of sin, by annulment of sin, and by sanctifying out sin. So there's two invitations this morning to enter into the glorious forgiveness of Christ and then as fully forgiven people, perfected in Christ, let's start toddling. Let's pray. Stand with me. So Father, I pray in Jesus' name right now for every one of my brothers and sisters here in this building, online, listening later, whatever it might be, Father, right now, we open our heart to you. Open our heart to you. Holy Spirit, we invite you, come. Lift, speak, reveal. Holy Spirit, we invite you into our lives. We want to know you better, God. Hallelujah. Father, I pray for everyone hearing my voice right now. In Jesus' name, give us a hunger to just be with you, to be in your presence, to let you do the work in our souls, to help us to grow in grace, to become more patient, to give up our lust and anger, greed, pride, whatever it might be. Jesus. Give my brothers and sisters hunger to be with you. Just going to ask, is there anyone that has right now a scripture or a word? So we're just waiting before the Lord. God's stirring you. And make then that simple invitation again. If you need to enter into the glorious forgiveness of Jesus Christ, I'm just going to ask everyone right now, close your eyes. You say, I need forgiveness. Just raise your hand. We're going to pray. I need forgiveness. I need to get some stuff out of my life. Lord, in Jesus' name, I pray not only for forgiveness, but your word says a cleansing. And I pray for hope. In Jesus' name, hope cleansing, purifying of every thought, every word, every motivation, Lord. Cleanse us deeply. And Father, I pray for all of us that we would walk not perfectly every day, but we would walk aware of you, aware of your presence, aware of you as our loving Father, aware of you as the power of the Spirit is being poured into our lives. So, Father, I pray right now for every person in this moment, Holy Spirit, would you be poured out upon us, not only for spiritual gifts, but for the power to walk with you. Would you enable us, Holy Spirit, to walk with the Father, to grow in grace day by day, 
stumbling, forgiven, but growing, moving towards you. Hallelujah, Lord. Thank you, Father God. Thank you, Father God. And now may the love of God, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with all of you. In Jesus' name, amen.